We're going to continue our series through the book of Exodus. We are up to chapter 5. We're going to be looking at it in its entirety, but we're going to be reading. uh, We're going to skip a few verses. We'll come back to them later. And we're going to end with the first verse of chapter 6. So as you turn there, hear now God's word to his people. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Jump down to verse 6. Uh, sorry, no. Yep, verse 6. Can you, do, can you do verse 6? Of course you can. Verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. So from there, we're going to jump to verse 12. Verse 12 says, So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters, these were the Egyptians, the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen, these are the Israelites put in charge of other Israelites, the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's Egyptian taskmasters had set over them, they were beaten. And they were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Jumping now for one last time to verse 19. Verse 19 says this, The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks your daily task each day they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to Moses and Aaron Yahweh look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us Then Moses turned to Yahweh and he said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. An experienced uh, farmer was instructing some students on how to successfully hatch chicken eggs. It's a natural segue from what we just read, right? And as he was training them and instructing them, he asked them, What's the most important thing a chick farmer has to do? They had great answers. Keep the right temperature, keep the right humidity, set the eggs just right, turn the eggs at the right time. 
But he had a different answer, and his answer surprised them. He said, the most important thing you have to know once they start hatching, do not touch them. He said this because many young farmers see that little chick struggle. Because that when that chick is born, they, they have to peck through that shell. And it doesn't seem like a hard task for us, but it's an incredibly difficult task for that chick. That chick has to peck dozens and hundreds of times in order to get out of that shell, and it's almost natural and human to want to help that little chick. But that pecking through the shell is not just an unfortunate thing they have to go through. While they're pecking, they're building up the muscles they will need to survive outside of the shell. If they skip that process because someone decides to help them along the way, they die. Quite simply, they die. And so if someone had to ask you what the most important thing a Christian has to do, I wonder how many of us would, ha would say we have to suffer. But just like that little chick, our suffering is not just something we go through. It's something that prepares us for this life and for glory to come. And so this morning, we're going to experience and explore suffering through deliverance. And we'll see at least these three things. That God's people suffer because God is not known. God's people suffer though God is just. And God's people suffer until God delivers. We'll start with the fact that God's people suffer because God is not known. In verse 2, after Moses and Aaron ask Pharaoh to let God's people go, Moses, Pharaoh says this, Who's Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The people suffered because God was not known, and by which we mean his authority was not recognized. If you look at Pharaoh's response, he didn't say, Yahweh, I hate him. Let me do the opposite of what he's asked. No, his response is significantly more disrespectful than that. Yahweh? Pfft, who's that? The hardening of Pharaoh's heart had begun. And when Moses and Aaron return, Pharaoh responds disrespectfully again in verse 4. says, The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work, from their burdens? He doesn't even address Yahweh. He just talks to Moses and Aaron. And he doesn't say that they need to leave to sacrifice. It's just to get them away from their work. And then he doubles down. When he hears Yahweh's demands to him, Pharaoh responds with his demands. Verses 7 and 8, he says to the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Let me paint a picture of, of what's happening here. Uh, before these events in chapter 5, the Israelites were tasked with making bricks out of dried mud. And much like rebar reinforces concrete, 
this straw would reinforce the mud bricks. They would get these straw from long stalks of plants, like celery. But Pharaoh now says, no more straw. You have to figure out a way to reinforce the bricks some other way. And so it tells us that they were reduced to using stubble. Uh, this isn't what you see on my face right here. This is, you know, when, when you cut off a plant, there, there's something left in the ground. It's not much, but I guess it'll have to do. It's like when you cut a tree and there's a stump left. That's what the Israelites were left to do. And they had to make the same number of bricks. Extra work, same expectations. Pharaoh did not know God. He did not recognize his authority, and so the people suffered. I'm reminded, Pharaoh's response reminds me of, of King Theoden in The Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien, Tolkien wrote to illustrate many of Scripture's truths. And this is one of them. Theoden was a good king, but he, in this scene, he's being corrupted by an evil character. Right? His mind is not right. His soul is being influenced. But in walks Gandalf. And many of you are responding like Pharaoh. Who's Gandalf? Why? Okay. Gandalf is a powerful being. And he walks into the throne room of the king with the intent of freeing the king. And so he says to them, he proclaims with a loud voice, I release you! But if you watch, if you watch the movie, there's no triumphant music. There's no, there's no glorious, climactic victory. There's only laughter. King Theoden looks at him. He chuckles. And then he says what you've probably seen in, in memes across the internet. You have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. The king didn't realize the power of the one he was speaking to. And because of that, his people, the people around him, suffered. Likewise, though Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, puny humans still stand in defiance of him and you his people will suffer because of it because we do hold God as our authority and when we hold to an authority that the people around us don't recognize there's going to be conflict our, our business practice and ethics are going to be different the kindness we show to those who have less power than us will seem strange how we choose to spend our time and our money and our energies will appear foreign and silly to those around us. Jesus is the prime example of this. In, in John's gospel account, he does this wonderful job of juxtaposing Jesus' authority with his rejection, literally in the first chapter. In John chapter 1, he tells us that he, Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him. Don't, don't gloss over that. That's an important phrase. He has all authority. And so how did the world that he made respond to him? It didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Our Savior, 
our Redeemer, our Creator and Sustainer, was rejected by the very ones He created. And so it's no surprise that He tells us to expect the same treatment. In John's letter, just a few chapters later, John 15, He says, A servant, which is what you are, which is what I am, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then he says, and, and as he keeps going, he says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. There's a direct correlation between the world not knowing God and the suffering that we will endure. Being in Christ means that to some degree we will be rejected and persecuted just as he was. We should not be surprised. But, as we have sung several times this morning, we rest confident. We are able to endure because we know that our Lord Jesus has all the authority. We know how the story ends. We know that he knows what we're going through. In other words, though God is not known, we are known by him. That gives us comfort, that gives us security, that gives us assurance. But what about the justice of it all? Do we deserve this suffering as a consequence of our past or future sin? If it is, if we do suffer injustice, is God still just? We've already seen that God's people suffer because God is not known. We will see now that God's people suffer though God is just. If you look at verses 10 and 11, we see that in our suffering, we know that God is still just because we will face injustice. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and they said to the people, this is what Pharaoh said, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. That's not fair. However you want to slice it, it is unjust. But how did the people respond? They did not revolt. Verse 12. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. This is the task before them. So they did it. Oh, but, but then Pharaoh saw the error of his ways and he turned and he, re he realized how ridiculous it was to impose an impossible task on the people. So he changed his mind, right? Verse 13. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were, and they were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? They were asked to do an impossible task. And then they suffered for not completing that which was impossible. How did they respond? Did they just take it? Because they felt like they deserved it? No. Did they just bear it because there was nothing they could do? No, the people, the people cried out in verse 21. 
the people cried out and they said, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses, right, the people turn to Moses and Aaron. Moses, in turn, turns to God, turns to Yahweh, and he says, What are you doing? Why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done nothing but evil to his people, and you have not delivered us. The people recognize injustice. They recognize that which is not good, and they responded accordingly. They call out to, they cry out to God, and God does not rebuke them. This, this will come as no surprise to some of you and a great surprise to others. Um, but in the seventh grade, I set a record at my school. It's not that impressive. Um, it was for most detentions in a single school year. I, I assume the people laughing are not surprised. Okay. Now, most of these detentions, I can say now in hindsight, were just. Most of them, I was just talking, I was playing pranks, I was just not paying attention. Most of them were deserved, but some of them weren't. Some, sometimes I really wasn't the one talking that time. But I had developed a reputation. It was easy to target me. Now here's the sad part. I made my peace with those unjust punishments, but not in a good way. The way I rationalized it was, I figured that was God's way of evening out the scales. There were so many times I had gotten away with disobedience that I figured I deserved the unjust punishment as well, right? I figured maybe this was God's way of making up for not punishing me that other time, or I'm sure I'm going to mess up in the future and not get caught, so this is God's way of balancing that out, right? Playing catch-up. Christian karma. Maybe you feel similarly in your unjust suffering. That you have no option but to grin and to bear it because you're such a great sinner that you deserve that and far worse. Now the danger of that lie and similar lies is that they have an element of truth. You do deserve God's wrath for your sins. You do deserve terrible punishment for the things that you have thought, for the things that I have done and not done. But what happens to the child of God on this earth is not God's punishment for their sins because Jesus has already been punished for their sins. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, uh, Peter is this... You know, lots of Old Testament books have a, have a New Testament parallel. Peter was steeped in Exodus, so we're going to be going to Peter a lot. Peter says that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Done. Finished. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus didn't pay 90% of it and then leave us to pay the other 10%. Jesus bore 
all our sins in his body on the tree. Payment complete. For all those who trust in Jesus to save them, Jesus already took on our sin and paid the full price. God would not be just if he were to punish those sins again. God's people suffer though God is just, not because he is just. So what we endure here on earth is, not suffer, is suffering. It is not punishment. And Peter addresses both just and unjust suffering in these verses that come literally right before these. That was verse 24. Here's verses 22, 20 to 22. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You don't get Christian brownie points for going to jail if you literally commit a sinful crime, right? Like you can't get the brownie points for that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God because that's exactly what you were called to. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is certainly more than our example, but he's not less than our example. What was this example that he left us? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus showed us how we can react when we suffer, justly or unjustly. He suffered terribly, and every ounce of it was undeserved, but he was able to endure without responding sinfully. Not just because he's God and he can do everything. Because just as Jesus was 100% God, he was 100% human. And so Peter tells us how Jesus was able to endure. And he doesn't say, well, he's God, you have no hope of, of doing that. If that's the answer, then how is Jesus our example? No, Jesus left us a human example. Verse 23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is how Jesus was able to endure. That is how you can endure. While Pharaoh did not know Yahweh and he did not recognize his authority, Jesus knows him intimately. Jesus knows that his heart is just. And in Jesus, we can know the same. That's how we can endure suffering, even though we are not perfect like Jesus. We can endure not only because Jesus took on our sins. We can endure suffering while still doing good, while still loving our neighbor, while not threatening in return. Not only because we have been shown abundant, overflowing grace, though that is true, we can also endure because we know the good news that our God is just. Amen? He is just. And one day, one day, all that is wrong will be made right. But that day seems so far away. Our suffering seems so long. 
That is why God's people. We suffer because God is not known. We suffer though God is just. But we only suffer until God delivers. God's people suffer until God delivers. Exodus chapter 6 verse 1. God promises deliverance. He says this every time I read this verse. I imagine this Morgan Freeman deep bellowing voice, right? Now you shall see. I don't know how you imagine that being, being spoken. But I imagine this thundering, quaking voice that destroys mountains. Now you shall see what I will do. The suffering has an end, God says. For God's people in Exodus, for God's people in Stewart, Florida in 2023, suffering has an end. I will, with a strong hand, I will cause Pharaoh to send you out. That's basically what God says. With a strong hand, he will drive God's people out of his land. In the Psalms, David likewise has enemies. He has literal armies fighting against him and seeking his life unjustly. And so he cries out to God just as the Israelites and Moses did in Exodus. You've heard it, right? Save me, help me, where are you? But he doesn't stop there. He reminds himself. He preaches to himself in Psalm 27, 14. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. God's people are a waiting people. All that we desire will not be accomplished here on this earth. It is for another day, a day yet in the future. But what do we do while we wait? What does waiting on our God look like? Sometimes it looks like making bricks without straw. Sometimes it means we get fired or we can't get a job to begin with. Sometimes it means our relationships crash and burn. Our grades are a hot mess. Our bodies are hurting or ill. Our hearts and our minds are seriously troubled. Our emotions are running wild. Nothing seems to be working out. But because we know God and He knows us, because we know that God is just, and because we know that our suffering has an expiration date, we can do as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Not to be surprised at our trials, but to rejoice. To rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And it's for a purpose that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why? Why? Because these sufferings are not just something for us to wait out. These sufferings that we endure are trials to get through. They are preparing us for something. There's a reason Jesus suffered and then was glorified. There's a reason Jesus didn't just come down to earth and say, your sins are wiped out, and then he went back to heaven. There's a reason. 
He suffered and then was glorified. We also share in his sufferings that we may also share in his glory. I would love to think, I would love to think that if my kids were all walking with the Lord, that if my marriage was rock solid and happy all the time, that if my job was always fulfilling, that if my finances were thriving, that if my body looked and felt the way that I wanted it to, that I would bless the Lord at all times and give him thanks. I would love to think that. But the more likely scenario is that I would grow arrogant and complacent and lazy. And I would depend on those things, not just to be happy, but to worship those things, to depend on those things, to lean on those things for my identity, for my purpose, for my joy. And so these sufferings that we all endure serve as a sort of wake-up call, a jolt, a reminder to set our eyes on our security on God and none other. And it's a reminder that all these things on earth, including our trials, are pointing us to glory. And so as we conclude this morning, as we wait on Yahweh and wait to see what he will do, let me remind us of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which we will sing in a moment. We do not lose heart, says Paul to the church, to you. Do not lose heart. Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we will sing in a moment, our pain is real. Our pain is pressing. But Paul can call it light and momentary because he's comparing it to the glory that we cannot imagine. A glory where there is no suffering. A glory where every fear, every heartache, every trauma is gone. A glory where there is no pride and no sin. And on that day, on that glorious day when our suffering is done and our deliverance is complete, we will all sing together with one loud and glorious voice these words. Every year we thought was wasted. Every night we cried, how long? All will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. Amen. Pray with me as we prepare to sing. Thank you, Lord, for that promise, that very real, that very true, that very assuring promise, that our suffering is not in vain, it prepares us that our suffering is not eternal, it is temporary. That our suffering is not ours to bear alone, but Christ bared them before us and with us. Thank you that Christ is with us. Thank you that we have all of these promises in Christ. And so we pray this all in his glorious and comforting name. Amen.